and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast. I'm Tim Masso with the main man, the Car Kaiser, Alex Dykes. Alex, a new Land Cruiser. Indeed. Where did it come from? Where are we going? It came from Japan uh, and apparently will still be built there. So, uh, yeah, so I just went to the Land Cruiser Museum, which if you haven't been, uh, there is one in Salt Lake City, Utah. There actually are a number of Land Cruiser Museums around the world, but the the one that they were focusing on was uh, was in Salt Lake for the reveal of the North American Land Cruiser. Toyota's kind of confusing everybody around the world, especially for people that are really, well, I should say semi-tuned in with Land Cruiser-isms, because what we are getting in North America is the Land Cruiser Prado's descendant, which is no longer going to be called the Prado in Japan, actually. So if you're a Prado fan, sorry, name is dead. It's going to be the Land Cruiser 250. Now, contrasting with the Land Cruiser 300, which is the big Land Cruiser, and of course the Land Cruiser 70, which is still the 70, and that has been since, what year was that introduced, Tim? Oh, 1984. It's an easy one because I was yeah. born that year. There we go. So 1984. So if you want a 1984 Land Cruiser and you are lucky enough to live in Japan or Australia, you can still get one, uh, even with a five-speed manual and a Toyota uh, turbocharged, very lightly turbocharged, mind you, diesel V8 engine. Yeah, we're going to talk all about the other Land Cruisers that you can get around the world, because in the world of Toyota, Land Cruiser is second only to the crown in ubiquity. But uh, let's talk about the last Land Cruiser, and then we'll talk about how different this new one's going to be. Land Cruiser originally very much like a Jeep or mm -hmm. a Land Rover. It was a very rugged, utilitarian work vehicle. Starting in the mid-80s, it began to gentrify. And by the time we got to the J200 series in 2008, it was a full-blown luxury boat. Outgoing, last time it was on the market in the U.S., it was 85000 U.S. dollars. And Indeed. it seemed like that sort of thing, if it were a Cadillac or a Lincoln uh, or even a Chevy Tahoe, would have sold well. Why didn't people pay the premium for this big body on-frame SUV? Yeah, I, I have always been curious about the Land Cruiser and its trajectory there and how that happened internally at Toyota. And I just don't have a good answer for why it ended up where it ended up, but it kept turning into this uh, over the years. It turned into a Range Rover competitor, I guess, is what they were really after with the Toyota logo on it. And that was just too dear for North American shoppers to have that logo on it. The Lexus LX has stayed around. And so if you want a Land Cruiser 300 in the US, you can get the Lexus LX. They have decided to separate those models a bit more. Uh, previously, it was basically just a Land Cruiser with a Lexus logo and a few nice touches, but not a lot. They've tried to really differentiate them more uh, in, in certain markets where they are both sold at the same time. But yeah, it's interesting. In the 1967, I'm going to pop this chart up there for those that are watching the video. If you are listening to the podcast, go find the video on YouTube. You'll see this chart, which I found particularly interesting. It goes over the lineage of the Land Cruiser lineup uh, in a way that I did not expect them to describe uh, in this fashion. Basically, in their minds... Once the 70 series happened, there was sort of a, a, a fork in the road and the 70 series stayed as the heavy duty model. That's the one that you're still going to be able to find. It's still very boxy around the world. The Prado series happened. Uh, the 70 series Prado, the 80, uh, sorry, 90 series, 120 series and 150 series is a very small type here. Uh, and they consider those the light duty model, the 70 series heavy duty 
And then everything else, the 50, 60, 80, 100, 200, and 300 series, they're calling those all station wagons, um, which I know a lot of 100 series Land Cruiser owners are not going to be happy with that description, but it does sort of show the trajectory of that Land Cruiser lineup. They were going after a more comfortable, more on-road focused audience. The reality is that most Land Cruiser owners did not really off-road their Land Cruiser. Um, and according to Toyota Worldwide, more of the Prado owners, the smaller Land Cruiser owners, they tend to off-road a bit more. Weird twist, of course, the Prado has been sold in the U.S. for quite some time. It's the Lexus GX. Now, it's important to note that this whole time that Toyota struggled with the big body on-frame Land Cruiser, the 4Runner, which was new for 2009, has gone from strength to strength. And I checked on Bring a Trailer, the late great FJ Cruiser, which was discontinued in 2014, routinely sells for over $60,000 if it hasn't been beat to hell and stored outside. So Toyota was looking at these two trends, plus the success of the four-door Broncos and Wranglers, and saying, we need something in the price segment above mm -hmm. a 4Runner. And that's where I think this new Land Cruiser is going to be, because it's going to be exactly. shorter by 1.2 inches than the old Cruiser, but cheaper by about $30,000. Yeah, it's a pretty big difference. They're saying it's going to start around $55,000 or so. They said mid-50s, basically. So much more affordable than the outgoing model. Definitely solidly in the price range of a top-end Bronco, top-end uh, Wrangler. In fact, actually, you know, Bronco and Wrangler will probably still be more expensive in their fully loaded versions than the Land Cruiser. And then there's going to be a base model with a fabric interior, hard plastics that are easier to wipe out, easier to clean. I'm really intrigued by that particular trim because it does seem like they've listened. They're going to get four-wheel drive standard. Uh, it's going to have a true center differential for full-time four-wheel drive. Definitely some advantages to that particular design rather than the more typical uh, part-time transfer case system that we find in some of the alternatives. And then we're also going to get a 4Runner. So let's be clear there, this is not replacing the 4Runner in North America. In fact, we're only going to be getting 16,000 Land Cruisers uh, in the first full year of production because the factory is running full tilt trying to produce enough 4Runners for America. And so that's why the rumor mill is actually suggesting that 4Runner is going to change a bit. So now we have Land Cruiser that shrunk down. It's going to be two row only, so no three row version for the Land Cruiser. If you want the three row in this format, that's the Lexus GX. It will have a, a third row available. Forerunner probably is also gonna lose its third row option, likely gonna be smaller, probably possibly somewhere in this range, gonna have removable doors and compete more directly with Wrangler and Bronco. And then the wild rumor that is floating around is that they're actually gonna move production for the Forerunner to either Mexico or the United States because currently they're all built in Japan. And when this model was introduced, nobody in their wildest dreams at Toyota thought they were going to sell a quarter million forerunners a year. So they didn't really think about that importation uh, cost and expense. And so moving production to the U.S. will likely save some cash. That's also important to note just how big all these things are. So let me give you a flavor for how large this vehicle is. So the old outgoing J200 was 196.5 inches long, 112.2 inches in wheelbase. The new Land Cruiser will be identical in wheelbase, though notably two row only, at least initially. Mm -hmm. 
be slightly shorter at 193.7. Now, the FJ Cruiser is an interesting point of reference because it was built on a shortened forerunner platform. It had a 105.9-inch wheelbase, and it was 183.9 overall. And then our forerunner, which you can still buy, is 109.8, and it's 189.9, like 191 Point three, mm-hmm. So that's the size of all this stuff. And just for comparison, a Wrangler Unlimited is 192.5 inches long. Ford or Bronco, it's going to be 189.5. So these things are very, very comparable. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Indeed. The big difference here with this new vehicle is that uh, initially there are going to be far fewer trims available than you can get on Broncos and Wranglers, which are bewildering. When you yeah, start but it editing. does seem like it's going to be permanently limited. So it does not appear that there's ever going to be a three-row Land Cruiser in the United States. It looks like those days are dead. Uh, they put the battery where the third row would go. So it is entirely possible that when we get a hybrid Lexus GX, that that actually might also drop to two-row only. So they've said it's going to be one engine, four-cylinder turbocharged hybrid only, two-row only, likely limited trim levels uh, for the future, for, you know, foreseeable future because we have Sequoia on the top end in three row format, and we're going to have Forerunner slightly lower than this as far as price tag goes. And they don't want to step too much on the toes of the other models. Uh, so it really is an, an interesting twist there. Most likely the Forerunner is going to have a hybrid optional, but not standard. That's another one of the rumors that's that's been rolling around out there. Now, what's interesting here is that um, we do have a little bit of standardization. Initially, every single one is going to come with a locking center differential. Every single one is going to come with a locking rear differential. There are going to be three trims. The more entry-level ones are going to be the uh, first edition and Land Cruiser, or pardon me, first edition in 1958. These are going to have round headlights Mm -hmm. for nostalgic reasons. Then there's going to be one that's confusingly just called the Land Cruiser. First edition is going to be 5,000 trucks, which based on what Alex is saying is going to be a very large proportion of the whole first year production. It does sound like it. And there probably will be another trim with that look because they're kind of the round headlights bookend the lineup for some reason. So we get round headlights in the base. We move up to the square headlights and then it looks like it moves back to the round headlights for the first edition. Yeah, I think that's important to correct what I said before. There are two round headlights, but that Land Cruiser model is the one that's actually in the middle. Mm -hmm. Uh, First edition gives you a bunch of additional stuff. It gives you rock rails. It gives you uh, skid plates. It gives you trim. I believe you're going to have like a body color grill there. Uh, So it is going to be a little bit more opulent. But at least in terms of capability, they're mostly going to be the same. And I think we're talking a little bit about the power plant here because it, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's familiar, but at the same time, it's very new to the Land Cruiser world. Yes, it is the same hybrid train that we will find in the new Tacoma. So obviously all of Toyota and Lexus's body on frame vehicles are now related. So that's the probably the bigger thing too, is they used to have some separate uh, body on frame platforms. Uh, Hilux is still separate in the world, but uh, rumor mill says that it, things should actually get further conjoined as we go forward. But essentially, Tacoma through Tundra, Sequoia, LX, GX, Land Cruiser, etc., they're all now on the same body-on-frame platform with short, long, and wide versions of a a relatively similar frame and relatively similar drivetrains. So uh, the Tundra, for instance, gets the 3.4-liter twin-turbo-6 and a hybrid. Essentially, the same engines and transmissions are used in the Lexus uh, LX and the GX, Here we get a 2.4 liter turbo from the 
Tacoma, the smaller end of the spectrum, only it's going to be the hybrid system standard in this model. So 2.4 liter turbocharged and hybridized with an eight-speed automatic transmission. Also important to note is that, you know, we were talking about standardization in terms of most of the capabilities being the same. Uh, they're all going to be rated to 6,000 pounds, at least initially. And just to give you a orders of magnitude in terms of power and torque the outgoing 5.7 liter j200 engine in you know, slightly larger vehicle had 381 horsepower 401 pound-feet of torque the new iforce max 2.4 with a 48 millimeter electric motor attached in tandem these things are going to have 326 horsepower but substantially more torque at 465 feet and at substantially lower rpm so in terms of what you feel around town and on the trail if you are off-roading it it's going to feel stouter. Yeah, I'm really intrigued to see how the performance really shapes up in the real world, because the one tricky bit, of course, with a hybrid system like this is that if you are towing or you are off-roading in certain situations, you may end up with a battery that has been drained. And at that point, you're just down to the output of the 2.4 liter turbo, which is going to give you still a decent amount of torque at low RPMs, but significantly less than this peak. So I'm really curious to see how this ends up working for them. I would not be surprised if this stayed in all trims with this particular layout. So center locking differential, rear locking differential. It's entirely possible that they may add a front locker in some future version because it does not appear that we're going to be getting that in some of the other vehicles uh, in this uh, in this lineup, the Toyota body on frame lineup. But it does appear that we are getting this exact same four wheel drive system in the Tacoma with the hybrid system. So we get the Tacoma Hybrid Limited. It will have a true center differential. It'll actually be the only pickup truck in North America with an actual real differential in the middle. I think what they're going to do is they're going to save the locking front differential for some sort of TRD Pro edition down the line. It's going to be an absolute flagship model. It's going to be the thing that leads the line. It's going to be the most expensive. They're never going to do some, I don't think they're ever going to do something like a, a Wrangler 392 or a Bronco Raptor. So I think they'll go hardcore in the off-road direction, more towards a crawling angle type of thing um, with a TRD Pro. Do we know if we have a electronically a disengageable front sway bar? It does not, as far as I understand. They weren't too specific on the details, but it certainly doesn't look like it has one. There was no button for that, et cetera. And they wouldn't really talk too much about it. They feel it's not necessary for the kind of terrain that this vehicle is designed for. Um, there is a bit of debate in the off-roading world as to whether disconnectable sway bars are good, bad, or necessary or not. I know that I was recently uh, with Ineos driving the Grenadier in some very, very mild off-road terrain. And they were of the opinion that there was no need for a disconnecting sway bar, for instance, with their particular design. If you've got coil spring suspension and a reasonable amount of articulation, you should be okay. I mean, let's face it, the guys who really want to go crawling on rocks tend to be running you know, non-traditional rolling stock, boutique tires. They tend to modify their cars as necessary, and they're more than willing to just pull the sway bar manually mm -hmm. if that's really what they want to do. Right. And it is worth noting that there may be that, you know, more high performance version of this at some point. Toyota has also generally favored not having a front locking differential in a lot of their off-road vehicles. And the reason for that is that if you are crawling, for instance, across a surface, a surface sort of at an angle horizontally, say you're going around a huge boulder um, and you're trying to stay up on this boulder. So you, you have your, your steering wheel turned towards the upwards uphill side of this uh, slippery surface. You might want the rear locker. You probably want the center 
uh, to be locked so that we can make sure you have a lot of power equal places, but you generally don't want the front locked because you still need to be able to turn the vehicle in some of those situations. So they claim that for most off-roading, the, uh, the brake-based system is actually preferable as far as stability in some of those trickier maneuvers. Of course, Ford and Jeep disagree. Maybe you could clarify this, but it does seem like the wheelbase is awfully short for the length of the vehicle. Now, if you look at the wheelbases of the Wrangler and the Bronco, Wrangler is 118.4, Bronco is 116.1. These are the four-door models. And the new Land Cruiser is going to be 112.2, which seems really tight by the standards of this class. Yeah. It does improve the uh, the breakover angle, however. So the shorter yeah. wheelbase does lead to tidier dimensions. And that's honestly one of my complaints about the FJ Cruiser. For as tidy as some of the dimensions were, that felt enormous and very unwieldy on some off-road trails. I mean, it was the kind of vehicle you constantly had the multi-point turn around sharp corners, etc. I have always been curious as to why it has such a unique following. It does look really cool, but as an off-road vehicle, I actually didn't really care for it that much. It was also vastly underpowered compared to some of the others. Um, the short wheelbase can be really nice turning mm -hmm. off-road in terms of maneuverability. There is that. Yeah, it can be. So we don't have all of the details as far as exactly how it's going to stack up in a, in a true off-road environment. That remains to be seen a little bit here. But I suspect that some of these dimensional choices were related to that. They also said that you can put 35-inch tires fit on the vehicle without a lift. So um, I'm really intrigued by that because some folks had been questioning the ground clearance, which does not appear as high as some of the competition. And this is where I would caution that ground clearance, not everybody measures this the same way. Toyota prefers to measure from the bottom of the differential to the ground. So that's the least amount of clearance you will get. That's like minimum running ground clearance. Some manufacturers will for some reason measure elsewhere because I guess you could pick a line where you could go over an obstacle that is nine inches or something like that. But generally speaking, broad generalities here, with the same diameter wheel and tire on a vehicle, ground clearance with a solid axle is going to be identical. So same wheel on a Bronco, same wheel on a Wrangler, same wheel on this. Ground clearance is going to be largely similar because that differential is the problem. Uh, you will get more. You'll get greater ground clearance in an independent suspension vehicle with an air suspension because you can really push those arms down to the ground. But then you're creating a triangle under the vehicle. It's not like you could run over a rock on the left side or the right side. You could just run down the center with that, say, 15 inches of ground clearance in like a Hummer or something along those lines. So there are definitely pros and cons to these approaches. But logically, the way you increase ground clearance with any solid axle is simply you have to put bigger wheels on it, bigger tires on it, I should say. Now, in terms of actual numbers, we're talking 31 degree approach, we're talking 32 degree um, breakover, and then 22 degree departure. It is slightly less in the basic uh, 1958 model. And again, I think Toyota's measuring ground clearance honestly here from the bottom of the differential. They're rating this for 8.7 inches of ground clearance. And I think that's the way it should be because there are times off-road when you don't have the option of picking the perfect line, especially over the kind of rocky surface where you might actually worry about ground mm -hmm. clearance like a differential strike so you can't always position the differential you know to the left or the right of an obstacle uh, you just kind of have to trust in your hardware which is where skid brakes right. come in 
Um, but also, I think, you know, if you're measuring to the center of the axle alongside the differential and you're getting an extra three, four inches of ground clearance out of that, that doesn't describe how quickly your vehicle will strike in a worst case scenario. Exactly. So I'm actually with Toyota here. Yeah. And you know, it, you will get greater ground clearance, of course, in the top end Broncos and top end Wranglers that are going to have 34, 35 inch tires, et cetera, because of that larger tire, because it, it's the same situation in those vehicles, solid rear axle, solid front axle, of course, in the, in the Wrangler as well. Um, but if you, uh, if you want that extra ground clearance, you're going to have to step up tire wise. Also, if you're really a, an avid off-roader, you're going to want to change the tires out anyway, because Toyota is not going to really be offering an aggressive all-terrain tire in any version of the Land Cruiser at the moment. There's one more detail you need to know about, which is that the rear hatch has a separate opening glass panel. So you can open the hatch and the rear glass separately, which is wonderful. It does um, indeed. But... And it hatches to the sky. It doesn't doesn't swing to the side. There's no spare tire on the back. It's under the vehicle. Um, I'm I, I'm a little torn on that because there's a classic Land Rover vibe in having the, the spare tire uh, on the door that opens to the side, although obviously the hatchback is more practical and useful. The jury's really out on Toyota converting all of these utility-style trucks to hybrid systems. Uh, it's got advantages, disadvantages. Can we expect a combined EPA rating of 20 or above here as a payoff for all this complexity? That's that's a hard sell. I would say I doubt it. I would expect fuel efficiency to be minorly above Sequoia, but it's not going to be worlds away. We're going to talk about the Land Cruisers around the world. I think the best way to start is with chronologically the first of them, which is the 70 series. If you live in Australia, you know the 70 series. Everywhere else, you may be surprised, like those celebrities you hear die and you know thought died years ago. It's been going since 1984. Alex, tell me about the 70 series. Yeah, I am intrigued. The 70 series has been refreshed yet again. This is its fourth refresh. Turns out the 70 series has just been a fantastically well-received vehicle worldwide. So Toyota just decided to keep making it. They've refreshed the exterior with a new bumper that looks uh, honestly a little bit G-Wagon-y, which is, I think, a good look. It's got LED headlights, finally. Um, the sheet metal, largely the same. The frame, exactly the same. The interior looks like a hot mess. Uh, it looks like a bunch of 1990s and 2000s Toyota parts just sort of jammed in there together, like um, some vents from a Toyota Echo and a steering wheel from some foreign market minivan. And, uh, you know, it it is all kinds of epic. I would buy one in a heartbeat. You can get a 2.8 liter turbocharged diesel uh, in most markets. That's going to be the standard engine. But the venerable 4.5 liter turbo diesel that has hung out forever, it's a V8, very old design, that is still going to be offered, but only with a five-speed manual transmission. No six-speed, just a five-speed. And even though it is a turbocharged 4.5 liter V8, it will get you one horsepower more than Toyota's newer 2.8 liter turbo diesel. So I, I don't see a lot of reason to get the V8 manual unless you do plan to trek across Africa and you're really worried about commonality of parts. I think you're being way too generous saying the interior of the 70 series looks like it's made in 90s parts. It is a box of blocks. It is absolutely like 1980s rectilinear modular design. Everything is plastic. It's all stacked up like Legos. The only Did you piece- Check that out that shifter though? The, the shifter's like from the 2010s. Oh, oh, oh. I was looking at the steering wheel with the- Yeah. Portion. Because that's the weird thing about the 70 is that it's this like hodgepodge of Toyota parts. It's not 
just one era of Toyota that was that was rated. It's like a whole bunch of them. Yeah, actually, now that I'm looking, the steering wheel is bizarrely modern, and mm-hmm. I guess that it's a '90s shifter. And then we have the ultimate like rubber booted low range selector stock, which is actually quite awesome. Uh, we were talking about why this couldn't be sold in the U.S., and you know we think probably. The diesels aren't going to make emissions, but that could be overcome with a different engine. Mm-hmm. There's some question about whether or not it would pass crashes. But I think that if you just bring this over as a kit and you let the aftermarket combine the engine and the chassis, you just sell this as a kit out of the TRD parts counter at your Toyota dealer, somebody would buy it and it would be profitable. Yeah, apparently there are certain rules around kit cars and Toyota doesn't really seem to be interested in that angle at all. But uh, it did pass the uh, the Australian and New Zealand crash test regime actually fairly well. So the their their moderate offset test, it, it actually was fine. I don't know what IAHS would do with a small offset, but we probably will never know. When you look at the interior view, like when you're in the driver's seat here looking out, you can sort of visualize why this is not going to pass a crash test. There is so much glass. You look around and it's like you're you're in a, a greenhouse. These tiny little A-pillars, a belt line that's like low and jaunty like a TJ Wrangler. The, there's, there's absolutely no like bolstering around the junction of the A-pillar and the dash or the A-pillar and the roof. I can't imagine that a stack of popsicle sticks would give up anything in rigidity to this truck. Like this is, it, you look at it and you it, can see why it wouldn't pass. I mean, it, it somehow it met the uh, it met the pull test in uh, in uh, New Zealand, which is identical in format and speeds to the pull test in the U.S. So you never know. I don't believe it's got it doesn't have curtain side curtain airbags things like that. I would say as far as uh, passing, it's going to pass minimum safety standards in the U.S. It could be sold. Is it going to pass consumer preferences on dying uh, in a side act, side collision accident? That's a different question. In a world where you can just go and buy some old ratty 4x4 and jack it up with all the aftermarket parts you want, there is no shortage of like SJ Cherokees and K5 Blazers and like mm-hmm. big old on-frame trucks if you just want a super off-road rig with 80s technology you you can absolutely find that stuff so i think the guy who would be like theoretically the customer for this thing if it came to the u.s is already looking aftermarket parts and really old frame and power plants and to be honest you can already get one because you can you can uh 25 year rule yourself a 70 series Land Cruiser that is basically this exact same vehicle too. So, you know, it, uh, uh, there are a few, you know, kicking around. You go from the very utilitarian and superannuated to the very elite as we do still have this J200 Land Cruiser kicking around. We last saw it in 2021. It's still here as the Lexus LX, which goes from 90000 to $106,000, which is crazy money. But if you really do want the last Land Cruiser, it's still sold globally, and here is a Lexus. Who's the buyer for this? I don't even know. The Apparently, the, the 300 series Land Cruiser, which is what it's called worldwide, um, and the Lexus LX are designed isn't, for... Well, isn't uh, the 200 and the 300 still available? Aren't 200 was last. Ta- 200 was the last generation big Land Cruiser. 300 is the current generation big Land Cruiser. What was the Prado, which is the one that we're going to get, is now yeah. the Land Cruiser 250 because 
Okay. Toyota loves confusing people. And the Prado name is dead. And then there's the, so there's 70, 250, and 300. That's the Land Cruiser lineup in the oh, world, three of them okay. together. Um, so the big one is sold in not in in basically every market outside the U.S. that Toyota sells in. Most of them offer a Land Cruiser. So if you're in South America, if you're in Africa, et cetera, you can buy a Land Cruiser. And Lexus is not sold in as many markets. Actually, it's quite few markets really around the world. So if you're in the Middle East, most likely you're going to be buying the Land Cruiser, even in countries where the Lexus is available. It has more of a solid following there. Um, that's kind of the, the differentiation. Lexus now exists in its home market because remember when Lexus launched, it actually did not exist in Japan. Uh, but now you can actually get both of them there. It's interesting to me though, that we have these extremes at each end of the Land Cruiser, uh, kind of continuity with a super luxurious model that costs as much as like a black label navigator. And then we've got this thing that is like the successor to the FJ 40, mm-hmm. um, so here's the real question. If Toyota's bringing in so few of these, what's the business case? Just wait for the next forerunner and, and let that make the money? Probably. One would assume that once the forerunner leaves, they'll be able to produce more Land Cruiser 250s. It's never been a huge volume seller for Toyota. So it's understandable that there's going to be some limit to the production it depends on how well it sells, of course. If somehow this thing just absolutely skyrockets as far as its uh, sales success, then they'll probably try harder to build more. But at this point in time, that number sounds about right because that's already, you know, tons more than they ever sold of the other Land Cruiser. But now we were talking about maybe this changing if the next forerunner is made in the U.S. Mm-hmm, that's true. So that's part of what what why the Ouija board reading or the you know the tea leaf reading going on here um, is that because this is less expensive, theoretically the volume is going to be higher. Maybe they need more room at the factory to produce it. We're unsure because Toyota won't tell us, but we should know the forerunner's future probably sometime either later this year or early 2024. Always good to see if Toyota is buying new real estate. So watch that space. Question now, moving from a big inefficient truck to a bunch of questionably efficient EVs, the internet is buzzing with uh, the aftermath of a Reuters article published on July 27th that on one hand is completely obvious, on the other hand adds kind of a sinister subplot. But the idea of Tesla EV efficiency and range ratings being A, inaccurately rated, which doesn't surprise anyone. Um, and then or B, shouldn't it's surprise anyone. Yeah, <laughs> it, it should not surprise. But then the part that surprised me was that actually within Tesla, by Elon Musk's own request, there was a combination of an effort to cancel any service appointment that was inspired by a range complaint, and then also kind of cook the books with the algorithms that display projected range at least until 50% range is, is up, actually showing something that they knew in good faith uh, was not true. So, yeah, if we pick the story apart, which I think we must, um, there are several different components here. The first one is, I think, easier to explain. Uh, in our Model 3, there was no hinky business with the range calculation. It was weird, solidly weird, because what Tesla was doing, at, at least at that time, in our Model 3, was they were using the EPA range estimate, essentially, what the, the results of that testing as far as miles per kilowatt hour that you could drive. And for the range-o-meter that's just displayed on the screen, 
that's the calculation that it used all the time. It was not predictive. So battery full said 240 miles. Battery half full said 120 miles. The Reuters story, I'm not quite clear where they got this. Like it starts getting more accurate below 50%. At least ours never did. It was exactly the same at those lower levels and haven't seen any additional reporting around that one. So there's that's one component of this. The other component of this is, and I think the thing that's causing consternation for most folks, it's the part that I would be offended by, is the way that Tesla dealt with this internally, because we'll talk about the actual range separately from this. But this part doesn't surprise me either, because remember that Tesla is the combination of a dealer and a car manufacturer together. So I would assume, and I would not be surprised if, every dealer out there had some sort of internal policy to deal with range complaints in EVs in a similar way, or with like hybrids or people coming in asking about fuel economy in a vehicle. This is kind of a weird twisted thing also, because I'm not sure how many people phone up their dealer and make up a service appointment to come in and bring their Silverado in because it's not meeting its EPA range or fuel economy. Yeah, I think, first of all, they didn't accurately portray you know the the variables that are that are involved in the rating of range including you know how you use your car uh, temperature um, climate control use i think people often getting into the tesla experience um, first looked at whether or not they would be able to charge it easily and they were sold on factors like the supercharger or the pop culture you know image of the brand or maybe faith in the EPA ratings themselves, which after all come from the government, not from Tesla. Uh, And then having gotten into it, found that maybe they were a little bit behind the education curve on EVs generally. Mm -hmm. So I I don't actually fault Tesla for trying to discourage people from, you know, booking up service centers for range complaints, because what are you going to do? Um, I, I do think that yeah, when it's that, that, that's yeah. a tricky part, because like te- test, there's nothing for Tesla to do because it's it's not malfunctioning. So like, why would you have a service appointment for a vehicle that's not malfunctioning? I would have hoped that the better thing for them to have done was to explain to the customer what's going on, which they did not do. They just created the diversion team, et cetera, to try and cancel the appointments because they didn't want to clog up the service center for actual service visits that were needed. Again, business-wise, logical, consumer service, customer service, bad. Um, But this leads to the range part. And I will snip it to say that my unpopular opinion is that if you are buying what is likely going to be your first or second most expensive purchase in your life, then you better do a lot of research. Like I... I honestly do not understand the consumer that just goes out and blindly buys a $60,000, $70,000 car without doing any research into this. And if they'd done a modicum of it, they would have discovered the reality of range tests and estimates and the components therein, the things that make up range estimates, which are relatively similar to gasoline vehicles, but can be amplified in certain things. Like a gasoline vehicle loses range in the winter. A lot of people don't realize it because it's a small loss and you don't care because you can go to the gas station. In an EV, that sort of loss is just magnified in, a, in an entirely different way, but it's it's there in all cars. But the the reason that I fault the EPA for this, and actually, oddly enough, every car company that existed in 2008, is that when the EPA cooked up the newest range testing procedures, which were supposedly to readjust things 
and make things more realistic, more real world, they created three additional test cycles. So before we only had the city and the highway test, they added three more for a five cycle test. And EPA testing a vehicle is very expensive. So the EPA doesn't actually test them. It's worth telling people this too. The EPA does not test the vehicles. Generally, it's an independent laboratory. Car companies pay the laboratory to test their vehicle. That data is then filed and submitted with the EPA. And the EPA verifies something like 1% of new cars. So it's a very, very tiny percent. Um, And the problem is that when they created these five test cycles, every major car manufacturer in the United States cried foul. And they said, oh my God, this is going to cost tens of millions of dollars per new car launch because we have to run all these additional cycles. The, The facilities aren't made for this. They don't have the throughput, blah, 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 blah. So what the EPA said was, okay, okay, we'll let you run the first two cycles. Then we will apply some math on the back end and we'll calculate out what this should be for the five test cycles. And For some weird reason, the EPA did not then say, this is the new procedure. They made it optional. So they let you run the five full test cycles or the two test cycles and take the government's uh, recalculation of those numbers. Then 2011 rolls around and they finally decide what they're going to do with electric vehicles. And they didn't fix this particular problem. And they just applied some new modifiers specific for EVs. So essentially what happens is you're on the first two test cycles, you cut your number by 30%. That's the number that you get on your range estimate. And it's worth noting for everybody out there, highway fuel economy averages 48 miles an hour in the EPA test, just 48. The city highway, city loop rather, it's just over 20 miles an hour. Air conditioning is not on. No other electrical loads are counted in this test. It's not steering. It's not going around a corner. It's 70 degrees inside a laboratory with a fan on the car on a dynamometer. So these tests are not realistic at all. Like there's no world where this exists. Um, So that is the world where these test results are cooked up. The problem was this two test procedure. So you could either do that, take the government's hit or you can run all five test cycles, and then you can calculate your own modifier for that. And some folks might assume that would create a lower number. No, it actually creates a higher number, especially for EVs. And this is why Tesla, Audi, and a bunch of other car companies, Lucid also does it as well, because the high-speed highway test, which was part of the restatement of fuel economy in 2008, even though that hits a a high of 80 miles an hour, the acceleration is glacial, And the average speed is still 48 miles an hour. So it's still a very low speed test. And it's still absolutely bonkers and not real world at all. But that's how you end up with like a Tesla Model Y that has an adjustment factor of about 24% instead of 30%. So that's what's going on there. Okay, so here's a couple of things for people to consider out there in cyberspace. There are reliable third party tests of EV range that you can reference. For mainstream models, you're probably not going to find like a Karma Rivero or, you know, GS6 on there. But good work's been done by Car and Driver with a 75 mile an hour test that includes climate control use. It's highway based. It doesn't allow for a lot of regeneration, which is something electric cars often rely on to extend Mm -hmm. their batteries. So they have reliably found that, and and I'm just going to be the devil's advocate here, that Teslas often are the ones that fall 
short by the most percentage relative to their rated rank. And it's entirely logical when you look at the way they're doing the testing. And this is exactly why. Because the EPA, again, allows them to run a different test cycle, basically, than everybody else. And then that calculates a bigger range number that is less realistic. But the core of this is not Tesla gaming the system. So this is why I'm pretty sure that the lawsuits will fail because all they're doing is advertising the EPA testing that they are allowed to do by the government. So the EPA should just not allow this. And this also makes it difficult to compare apples to oranges. So if you're a consumer out there, you cannot compare the range of a Tesla to a Mach-E based on window sticker which was the entire purpose of the fuel economy label in the first place. The entire purpose was, we know this test is not real world range, but it should still give you an ability to compare A to B. And the trouble is the way that the testing actually works, you can't compare A to B because you don't know, unless you read the EPA filing, which manufacturers are doing the full test procedure or are just running the two cycles. And then there's voluntary reductions as well. So. It's another tricky segment here, but essentially what Porsche did, for instance, with the early Taycan models is they ran the, the two cycle procedure, accepted the government modifier. Then they said, eh, we're going to whack an extra 30 miles off the top. Just we want to make sure that people get the range and we don't get uh, hit in the press for not meeting the range. The trouble is, of course, that the average consumer hasn't cared so far. The average Tesla driver hasn't cared somehow. And we've done videos on this and they did not hit at all. We got assailed when we said that the Tesla Model 3 Standard Range Plus that we owned, it was real world rated for 192 miles, not 240. And we got hate mail all over the place. And you know what? This is exactly why. Said it then, it's the same thing now. And so a couple of things we're just going to throw out there. I think that the lawsuits, and there are lawsuits now in the wake of the Reuters article, they don't have a leg to stand on. I think if Tesla's going to get in trouble, it's going to be for underdeveloped, oversold, and largely unregulated autonomy systems. Uh, that's yeah, a that's, that's a big liability for them. <laughs> Separately, if you do want to compare apples to apples, don't look at the ratings. I, I do recommend you go with things like like the car and driver tests. And there have been some independent SAE supposed to go, go with the auto buyer's guide tests there, Tim. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm just uh, I'm saying there are <laughs> tests out there, including by auto buyer's guide, which you can find on the auto buyer's guide website as well as on their YouTube channel. But let's just use the brand X tests for a minute. Okay. So in terms of what the Tesla's achieved, let's take me to the market. No plaids, no crazy crap, um, no ludicrous mode. A Model Y long range, 2020. Again, this is the most popular Tesla vehicle globally, 30% below the rated range as tested at 75 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. uh, 2019 Model 3 long range, again, second most popular EV sold by Tesla globally, minus 23%. Steam age electric technology by a 2017 Chevy Bolt, minus 17%. That's about as basic an electric car as you can find, and that is very old tech, even by GM standards. The Ford mm -hmm. Mustang Mach-E, non-performance, just four-wheel drive, all-wheel drive, it was 7% short of the EPA rated range, and the yep. Polestar 2, 14% short. So these are mm -hmm. apples-to-apples apples comparisons. But let's pick that apart actually a little bit okay. further, too, because one of the things that I think a lot of folks don't realize is that when we think range as a consumer, we're thinking, can I get from A to B? Can I get from Dallas to Houston? 
we are not thinking how many times can I do circles around Manhattan at an average speed of 21 miles an hour, right? So like, that's not what we're thinking. And the problem with the way that range is discussed on an EV is we're talking about EPA combined cycle range. And when you look at that number, that's 55% city, 45% highway, again, with an average speed of that cycle combined of about 34 miles an hour. That's what that is. So I would bet if you did any of these EVs at 35 miles an hour on that same test, you'd probably get pretty close to the actual range. Trouble is that's not what we're doing, right? And that's why vehicles like Ford's Lightning actually do not do well in long distance highway range tests. When you look at at the way that the fuel economy numbers are, are out here, in a gasoline vehicle, let's shift gears to gasoline for a moment, you buy a, a 15 mile per gallon Silverado and you go on a road trip and you get 16 or 17 miles per gallon. You pat yourself on your back. You're like, "Ooh, I got fantastic fuel economy. It's only rated for 15. I did fantastic on my road trip to Houston. Well, sure, but your highway fuel economy is actually rated for 20 and your truck didn't do that. So you should actually be saying, oh, my God, I didn't get the fuel economy rating. Thing is, the highway fuel economy rating is higher. So when you're out on the road in your gasoline vehicle, your experience skews higher than the EPA rating. Now, admittedly, all universal tests have actually shown that the way that this rating scale works, realistic fuel economy in a gasoline vehicle is generally higher, closer to that rating than an EV, all EVs, mind you. But then the tricky part with the EV is that city fuel economy is typically better because of the way these tests are done very low speed. The city acceleration profile equates to about a 20 second zero to 60 time. That's how slowly these things are accelerating. They average 20 miles an hour. They spend a lot of time stopped. So compared to a gasoline vehicle that's idling all the time, and that's what drives that number down, EVs really excel because they can regenerate all the power they need back into the battery as much as possible. Acceleration's glacial. Aerodynamics factor into this very, very little, right? So that's right. that big number on the label. That's why you get a Model Y and it's 140, 130 MPGE. Look at the highway rating, much, much less. But that combined number that everybody's looking at and going by, it skews to the city side. And if that city number is much higher, you're going to get bonkers results. And none of these people, Edmonds, Car and Driver, Motor Trend, etc., none of these outlets ever actually compare highway rating for the vehicle versus how far it can go on that track. That's that's the critical thing that I find a flaw with that report. So you look at a Ford Lightning. The Lightning does very poorly in this test. It's rated for 320 miles. In our Lightning, we got maybe about 270 miles on the highway at around 70 miles an hour. But in the EPA highway test, it's actually only rated for 280. So it's actually much closer to that highway rating than you think. The problem is we're not looking at the highway rating. So I personally think that a lot of this should be legislatively figured out. I think EVs should give us three different range numbers, should give us a combined number. If you want to give it to us EPA, that's fine, but they should split out city and highway. And the highway driving should be more focused on steady state speed because who out there is thinking, how far can I go in, in 48 mile an hour traffic? That's not how we road trip in America. That is how we buy our cars, though, because I'll be totally honest, the number one hesitation people have in mind when they decide not to buy an electric car, if they're open to the idea, but they shy away, is a worst case scenario. What if Mm -hmm. I have to go on a road 
road trip. How far do I go before I have to charge? Can I find a charger? And then how quick is it? Exactly. Unless you're an Uber driver or you drive for Lyft, I'm saying this with total respect, but the idea that you're going to drive more than 250 miles in one day on local roads without ever hitting a highway, Mm -hmm. it almost doesn't matter as long as you've got that 200 plus mile rating on your car. If you're just doing local driving, you're going to exhaust yourself before you exhaust the car. So I think the worst case scenario, high speed, climate control active highway drive is representative of the issue that motivates people's fears about EVs. So it's useful to see from that standpoint. Um, I think there needs to be a happy medium between that sort of thing and an EPA test that simulates unrepresentative mixed cycle driving. So I think we're sort of on the same. And honestly, the EPA is the only, they're the the group that are arguably that caused this disparity between ratings. They're, They're the ones that caused us to have two different ways of measuring fuel economy and two different numbers displayed on window stickers, the window stickers that consumers are going by. But they're also the only group that can actually educate customers and can fix this because it's not in any EV manufacturer's best interests to put this information out. Let's be frank. It's not like Ford is going to go to their shareholders and get money for an advertising campaign telling you what real world range is going to be like in their EV. This is something that the EPA or whatever government agency you want to insert in this conversation is the one that needs to do this. If you actually had some sort of standardized testing procedure that said, you know, this is what this car will do at 60 degrees with the climate control set to 70 degrees at 70 miles an hour, like that is a useful number, but the window sticker will never give you that in any EV they're going to be all over the map. Some will be closer to these numbers because of A, the way they were tested, because again, two different test procedures, but also the variance between window sticker, highway, and and city fuel economy. If you take a look at some of these vehicles out there, you'll notice that some are close together, and a lot of those vehicles perform better in those long-distance oval tests versus their window sticker range, and some are very far apart, like a Hummer and a Lightning, very aerodynamically inefficient vehicles, they're going to be worlds apart between these two numbers, and they're going to score very differently in these tests. And that's before we even talk about, you know, an unaerodynamic, say, Tesla Model X, and it's then, you know, bonkers EPA fuel test cycle that's somehow allowed, and it's disparity between real world range and uh, and actual range. The, I think one perfect example, if anybody wants to go and watch a random video from the channel, is a number of years ago, when we bought our Lightning, the Ford Mustang, uh, sorry, our Ford Mustang Mach-E um, for long-term testing, we said this is actually fantastic when it comes to range. Flight Mach-E driven gently, say 64 to 65 miles an hour, will honest to goodness get you about 275 miles an hour, or 275 miles rather, um, which is why actually Ford has subsequently bumped its range up because it does pretty well. That is longer than the real world range in a Tesla Model Y at the time. We had a viewer that wrote in, and very thankfully, I'm actually very happy that he did this because it kind of proved the point. But he wrote in and said, no, my Model Y is rated for 330 miles. I can go further. Let's let's do a, a side-by-side test. Because again, we had a video on the Model Y. People didn't like it. So we started absolutely full batteries. Same point. We drove 230 miles. And uh, he calls me. We'd been caravanning. We'd been switching back and forth. But in line the entire time, same speed. Climate control set to the same temperature, tire pressures all within spec. 
He calls me to run 230 miles and says, I need to supercharge. I can't get back to the destination. Uh, there's an electric, uh, Electrify America station right next door. Do you need to stop? And I was like, no, good, good to go. And so the Model Y there was, would have gone about 240, 250 miles. It might have completed the test. It would have been super close. The Mach-E was good for another 60 miles further. So this is a perfect example of this particular problem. So basically, here's where we need to get. From where we are today, we need to get over this whole range thing. This needs to stop being the measure of an EV, because if you look at a Lamborghini LM002, like the crazy Rambo Lambo from the 80s, it got six to eight miles per gallon, but it had a 45-gallon fuel tank. So you could mm -hmm. wind up getting a decent range over 300 miles, despite getting world historically awful fuel economy. Now, there are some very efficient electric cars like the Chevy Bolt that are small, light, very aerodynamic, that don't have pornographic range because the battery is small, but they get exceptional efficiency, you know, well mm -hmm. over, um, you know, four miles per kilowatt hour. If you knew you could always find a charger and charge quickly, yep. the way you can always find a gas station and fill up quickly, we would stop talking about range and start talking about basically miles per kilowatt hour and efficiency. Yep which would make standardizing the EPA tests a lot easier. And given that you do pay a decent amount of money if you charge at a DC fast charger on the road, people would start to view the cost of charging their EV uh, the same way they view the cost of fueling their car. So going to an efficiency-based rating system rather than a ranged one it is dependent on better charging infrastructure. Yep. But once I mean, we get there, that's going to be it. Mind you, the EPA definitely gives us this already, but yet again, it's dumb. Nobody buys electricity in gallons equivalent. So why do we have an MPGE number on an electric car? This is just the dumbest thing I have ever heard of before. You buy electricity in kilowatt hours in America. Everywhere, every place on earth you buy electricity in kilowatt hours. Why is this number like that on this sheet? Uh, but the EPA has always done this. It's been weird because they they use gallon equivalents for natural gas vehicles, except that when you buy natural gas as a business or as a personal consumer, you're buying it in therms. Like this makes no sense. Um, they did the same thing with liquid propane as well, even though you're buying that by weight and you're buying hydrogen by the kilogram, but it's still MPGE on the stupid window label. It makes no sense. And just for you guys out there who are listening to this, you're wondering about this MPGE thing. It's literally the miles per gallon equivalent of how far an electric car would go on roughly like 34,000 kilojoules or the energy in one gallon of gasoline. Yes. That's what the MPGE thing is, even though the if you could convert it at 100% yeah. efficiency, that's the theory. <laughs> and the utility scale electric generator that's providing the current for your car is going to be burning natural gas or coal in all likelihood as gasoline is only ever used in light vehicles, not utility scale generators. Right. And, it, and it wouldn't matter because there's no generator out there that could burn gasoline that would give you that efficiency because you would have to be this 100% magic unicorn conversion efficiency. It's it's very strange. And the EPA, just so we fill, fill in their disclaimer here, the EPA's claim is that this is some sort of method to compare relative vehicle efficiency the one to the other, which again makes no sense at all because there is no way you could ever put a gallon of gasoline in your EV and you could never put a gallon of gasoline in your hydrogen car or your liquid propane car or your natural gas car. So why is this gasoline gallon thing there? And also, why don't we have a gasoline gallon equivalent for a diesel vehicle? You know, these if we're all in on the GGE thing. <laughs> 
So this is why if you are buying an EV, you need to go to Auto Buyer's Guide and look at a representative field test of a car under representative conditions, and then you'll have a better idea. So don't go by what the government rating is. Use it only as a key. Don't go by what the manufacturer necessarily represents, including what you see represented on the dashboard during a test drive. Go buy an authentic test. And, you know, the more specific you can get, the better. Look at the exact model you want because there is a huge disparity between EVs. There are things like uh, resistive heating versus heat pumps that make a material difference in how the battery will burn down during cold weather. So you want to look at real testing by advocacy groups. So, Alex, where can they find us online at Auto Buyer's Guide if they want to do this? Uh, they can find us on the YouTube channel, Auto Buyer's Guide. You can Google us, of course, Auto Buyer's Guide, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Threads, all the other, you know, multitude of social media platforms that apparently we're all supposed to use. Toodaloo. See you everybody later.